Welcome to The Mortgage Life, a space for down-to-earth conversations about how mortgages contribute to your life. Well, that sounds canned and maybe a little boring. What? There are so many parts to the mortgage industry and real estate finance we can explore and share with our listeners. Okay, you're right. You're right, Mindy. Our goal is to help secure our clients' financial future. I'm Pete Salamosi. I'm Mindy Bodwin. And I'm Sue Salamosi. We're your hosts. Welcome to The Mortgage Life. So I came across Dustin Carlson's name on a mortgage brokering Facebook group because he had answered a bunch of questions about Canadians getting mortgages in the United States. And I thought, hey, this is cool. This guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to Canadians cross-border shopping for properties. So Dustin, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So to give you a little bit of an overview, I've been doing this 20, almost 22 years now, uh, mortgage brokering, mortgage lending. Uh, I'm based in Houston, Texas at this point, but I'm licensed in nearly every state. Really built the majority of my business doing a lot of business from Alaska to Florida, with Alaska being my number one state for over 15 years until just recently, until 2020. Alaska was my number one state for the 2004 until 2020. That's interesting. I do a lot of mortgages in the Yukon. Definitely. There's no (laughs) doubt. It's a unique proposition. And so it's fun. It's one of those things that's unique about Alaska. And it's partly what led me into doing a lot of the financing for Canadian or foreign nationals, as we refer to them here, is because it was an underserved market. At the end of the day, few people understood it. It was underserved. It has a lot of nuances. Um, mortgages do, do in general for financing, and they are definitely different. Even our vernacular in the states is different than it is in Canada in the way things are said, the way things are done, and especially our closing process or process, depending which part of Canada you're in. <laughs> and so, given that part of it was just explaining the vernacular to people from Canada, the foreign national borrowing here, and learning that whole process. So that's kind of my background, how I got into it. And as I mentioned, I have family throughout. All all of Canada, especially Alberta, BC area. And so already had an affinity for that and had family as well that bought property in the States. So at this time, is the bulk of your business still US folks buying US properties? Or would you say it's it's kind of migrated now to the foreign nationals? The bulk of my business is still US people buying US properties. They're a less complex loan in all honesty. And just the sheer volume of transactions makes it that way. I do a tremendous amount in Texas, but like I said, it's literally from Florida to Alaska. So I'm curious, what is the difference between brokers versus banks for you? So the biggest difference is brokers can go out to multiple banks and or lenders or private equity firms in the sense of getting financing. That's probably the biggest thing a broker where if they're at a bank, they're limited to whatever risk that specific bank is willing to take. In this situation, there might be a bank that's been burnt a couple of times on foreign national deals or certain situations, and they simply don't want to do them anymore, or they require 40% down payment, or they require a certain type of credit profile. And whereas a broker, I have access to 100 plus places that I can go to to get access to different funds. And I can tell you right now, I can take certain loans on foreign nationals, and out of those 100, I only have three that will lend on. And so if I worked for any of the 97 directly, I wouldn't have an outlet. I heard you mention a 40% down payment. Is that a common down payment amount? Or are you usually typically looking more or less? It's less uh, traditionally. On most of our programs for foreign nationals, it's in the ballpark of 25% is kind of the norm where we see it. 
25, sometimes it's 30, once in a great while it's 20, um, depending on a few variables. But that's really, I'd say 25% is kind of the quick answer without getting through the seven layers of questions to find out the exact 25, 30, 20. But 25 is kind of the quick rule of thumb. The other great part about that is the programs, when I say 25% down, usually are no income verification. And so it saves all of the conversion, it saves all the paperwork, it saves the T4s, it saves tax returns, it saves a lot of paperwork hassle and headache. And really at the end of the day, in most cases, it's only a quarter of a percent higher interest rate to save a tremendous amount of paperwork for people. That's blowing my mind right now. So as a Canadian, I can go buy myself a property in Palm Springs. I need probably 25% down, maybe up to 40. And you don't need to see that I have a job. I need to see if you have a job, likely, not a for sure. I don't always have to. Likely, I need to see you have a job, but I'm going to do that by just asking your employer, does she work there? Yes or no? Is she employed? Wow. Not looking for anything that's going to validate whether you make $8 an hour or $800 an hour. So as long as you have the cash up front, you're you're good to go. That's effectively how we're doing it. How the lending occurs is it's just you're putting enough down. The lender is in a secure enough position. If they have to foreclose, they can likely break even because at the end of the day, it's not going to go on your Canadian credit. Even if they foreclose, it's not going to hurt your credit because they don't report to the Canadian bureaus. So really all they can focus on is the property. And so that's why you making the payment as long as you have the down payment, they're secure. So interesting that, uh, that there, there's these different worlds that we work in in terms of the that qualification. I want to bring it back to one of the things that you said earlier, which is that there's, there's a bunch of kind of terms and things that are different. Tell us about the typical mortgage in the United States and how its term length differs from Canada. Because typically we have like one, two, three, four, five-year terms but we have a longer amortization. But how does it work in the US? The US about 96%, 94%, depending on the time frame we're in or that we're looking at. Other mortgages are 30-year fixed mortgages that are amortized for 30 years. So you can have that mortgage 23 years from today paying the exact same payment because most of these mortgages don't include taxes and insurance. You can add them if you want, or you can pay them on your own. It's your choice as long as you're putting 20% down. And in this case, you would be. And so it's a 30-year fixed loan. That rate's not going to adjust. It's not going to re-amortize. It's not going to have a balloon. You don't have to do anything. There's no penalty usually oftentimes for breaking that mortgage if you pay it off early. And so things of that nature are definitely different terminology. That is crazy. The fact that there's no penalty to pay it out. Like that's the big thing here is that we have a lot of clients that are are really potentially worried about these giant penalties on fixed rate type mortgages because they have uh, very restrictive penalty calculations. But in the US, those things, they just don't exist. We can remove them. The cases they do exist, you get a little bit lower interest rate, but you can choose whether it's five years, four years, three years, two years, or one year or zero. And it's a fixed 30 years, so most people do plan to keep it at least a year or two. And so it's not that big of a deal in that sense. So we just go with a one-year prepayment and that's it. As long as you keep it 12 payments, you're not going to have a penalty at all. You pay it off in month 13. So I imagine when rates went down a few years ago, I I would assume that the bulk of folks in the States would have refinanced their mortgages then, right? To relock themselves. Like that must have been a busy time. Yeah. Without a doubt, everyone was at the edge of every shoestring trying to work 70 and 80 hours a week to make things happen and paying overtime like they'd never paid before to operational employees. That's crazy. I heard that 
You said they plan to break the mortgage in one to two years. In Canada, typically we see people probably refinancing or selling their house or doing something to change their mortgage at about the three-year mark. Is one to two years standard in the States? Does it change more often? It's not. If we take a long-term average, it's 4.8 years. That's actually a really long-term 20, 30-year average if we look at it. If we look over the last five years, it's more like 2.7 years just because rates progressively were moving down and down and down. Mm -hmm. If we look... From last year to the next two years forward, we're probably going to move that number back up into the three plus year range very quickly as rates rise, right? It's the natural as they come down, more people are going to continue to refinance. So that's one of the big things. The other big terminology thing I want to hit on, it's not as much terminology as it is just the process that I find is the number one difference outside of all the terminology and everything is in the US, most of our loans take 30 to 45 days to close. And to close, I mean, go to the title company, sign the final paperwork, pay your money, get the keys to the house. Most loans do not get what we call a clear to close or yes, you're definitely closing till somewhere around 48 to 72 hours prior to that. So if you're planning to close, let's say January 30th, it's likely not 100% definite till somewhere between the, I would say the 28th is usual to find that out. So when on the 23rd, you're like, what time am I closing? It's like, the truth is in the US, I'm going to say it's probably 60 to 65% of mortgages actually hit that contract expected date. 25 to 40% of them, probably 35% do have a contract extension that occurs. And over the last couple of years, it's probably been that higher or higher because so many builders have missed their close dates. That house wasn't ready on time, things of that nature. But that's probably the biggest thing for a stress factor that I would... I'd really let Canadians go up front or foreign national borrowing money in the US is your close dates like 99% of the time, you're closing on a date, you're closing on a date. For us, yeah, it's 65% of the time. It's not that big of a deal oftentimes unless it's like this seller is using those proceeds to buy another home and that seller is buying another home all on the same day or within 48 hours. It's one of those things I see that the foreign nationals of Canadians really find much more stressful. It's like, oh my gosh, it's the 24th. What do you mean? I don't know my time on the 30th for closing yet. And we're like, we're planning on 10 o'clock, but I can't give you a hundred percent confidence. And I don't want to tell you you're closing at 10 o'clock on the 30th until I have that, what we consider a clear to close, which truly is 48 hours prior to closing. So I have a question in Canada, when you put a, an offer on a house to buy, you have your conditions precedent subject to financing, subject to home inspection, and say the average window would be about two weeks. So after that two-week period, the purchase agreement becomes unconditional, assuming that the buyer has removed all their conditions precedent, and you're 99% sure that this is going through and proceeding. And so then you have the rest of the time you know, to get your home insurance and whatever other items that you need to do for when you get your keys. But it sounds like in the in the U.S., that's not the case. Like you may not know if you're getting this mortgage until. So I would say it's very similar. They're, we're just not as staunch on those terms. Is probably the right way to put it. We have the same precedence clearing things, but sometimes that financing contingency is until day 21. Let's say on a 30 day contract. Wow, that, that would be stressful. It would. Be, I like the word staunch. I need to go look it up right now. <laughs> So we just aren't as tight on uh, those timelines. And it's it amazes me in the industry in general. There's so many moving pieces and parts. And it's one of those where people simply just, it's became acceptable practice for good enough or close enough to be good enough in general. The last year as the market was a lot faster paced, there were people that were a little more like, I can sell it to somebody else. 
But the reality is you're under contract. Let's say you have to extend one day or three days or four days. There's nobody else who's going to close three or four days. That's the reality is they just can't. So would you rather extend with the current buyer for two or three days? Or would you rather go find a whole new buyer, go back on the market? Hopefully you're going to get the same price. Maybe you'll get more, maybe you'll get less. Maybe they'll close, maybe they won't. Maybe their inspection will come back good too, or maybe it won't. So there's too many risks. And so I would say in in 20 plus years, I've only had once where the seller would not extend. It's not our goal. I just like to be very front facing and forward with it to the borrower when it's something that is outside of their norm. And like I said, it's only 35% of the time, let's say. But for most people borrowing, somewhere between 300000 and $2 million, 35% of the time is 35% of the time, 100% more of the time, really, than they're used to. So I've got a quick question. Wait, we, wait, wait. Before oh. we move on, I did look up staunch, and it means loyal and committed in attitude, or of if we're talking about a wall, we're talking it's strong or firm <laughs> construction. That makes sense. It was a good word. Over to you, Pete. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you mentioned that there's a, the term length is a lot longer. We've got the thirty year term, and it is a, typically a fixed rate. Do you find that in terms of availability, are fi- variable rates available in the United States? And typically, do people even look at those? So the short answer is yes, they're available. In the very recent ninety days, people have looked at them, and without going way down the rabbit hole of economics. It's what's called an inverted bond yield curve, meaning to borrow money in the short term is more expensive than the long term. For example, you go to your bank today and you put in $100,000. They may give you more money for locking it up for one year than locking it up for 10 years. Well, it's directly the same in lending. So in many cases right now, a five-year term actually has a higher interest rate than a 30-year fixed. So as a consumer, it just doesn't make sense to pay a premium for a higher risk situation. Gotcha. And it was an inverted say it bond again. yield curve. Yeah. Inverted bond yield. And what that means is the cost to borrow money is higher in a short term than a long term. Because traditionally, it's always going to be fairly linear. The longer the term, the more expensive the money. But right yes. now, we have what's called an inverted bond yield curve, which go down a whole other rabbit hole in recession if we really wanted, but we'll just leave it there. So we talked about kind of the process at the beginning, the different expectations for Canadians buying in the US. But what about transactional costs or closing costs here you know we're familiar with hiring a lawyer having to pay for an appraisal if necessary uh, what what kind of closing costs could we expect if we're purchasing in the US and are they different state to state they vary state to state without a doubt one of the biggest things is most states are not attorney states they don't require a lawyer they use a title company and what's called an escrow officer to do virtually everything. Most states, your total costs are gonna run about 3% of the purchase price. That's a quick rough sketch of the number, but it's around, you're buying a house for 500,000, you're putting 20% down, you're borrowing 400,000, 12,000 safe. There's a good chance we're gonna end up at nine to 10,000, but 3% is usually pretty safe in where we're gonna be as a generality on costs. Upfront, out-of-pocket costs, the appraisal, depending where you're at, between $700 and $900 out of pocket. That's really the only thing out of pocket up front, other than if you do any other inspections that you so choose as a consumer to do. Do you find that lots of buyers do home inspections in the States? Is that pretty common? It is. It's very common. I would say it's outside of new construction, it's 90 plus percent. And what about appraisals? You mentioned the appraisals. Is that something that most lenders require? Yes, lenders require in nearly every case. Even if you're putting down 50%, it's still required. Too many people played the system back in the day and they would go get a burned down property, a flooded out property, try to use a tax valuation, go pull out the cash, leave the bank holding the bag. 
bank shows up and they have nothing more than a foundation. So it happened more than once or twice. And so in this case, nearly always will an appraisal be needed on this loan type. There's other certain loan types that dealt with these 100% of the time, I think I can say confidently. So I have to admit that as soon as we came up with this idea to have you on this podcast, I was very excited. So back in 2009, 2010, when the US real estate market had a, a bit of an adjustment, I was looking, I, I wanted to purchase something so badly, but there was such a hurdle, uh, just so many variables and unknowns for me to purchase and so many things to consider it was like a complete black hole. So, so today, so say I wanted to purchase a place, you know, in California, how does it start? Like where, where does the application start? It's really a basic online application that I have you do, or I can do it over the phone. It takes us eight minutes on the high side, five, six minutes if you're a quick talker. I guess as far as getting through things, it's pretty simple. It's mainly name, address, date of birth. That's the main thing. Certain cases, we will pull a Canadian credit because it is modeled exactly the same as a US credit report. Other lenders will require no credit whatsoever. The benefit is if you have good credit and we pull your credit, it will help on the interest rate. That is the benefit. Outside of that, it's really, we do that. We let you know what you qualify for. And as long as you have around that 25% to put down, you're able to write an offer on a home. We get the contract. 30 days or so later, you get the keys. The biggest things to remember are making sure when you transfer funds that you keep good record of that. You're not moving a ton of funds around all over because if they haven't been in the account we're looking at for 60 days, we then have to go find out where they came from and make sure they're from you. We recommend that exact same thing here too. <laughs> so that's really the biggest thing. Certain lenders, the one thing they require that you need, not all of them do, but many, is that the funds are in the States for at least five business days, one week, prior to you transferring them to the title company. A lot of my clients use people like TD Ameritrade that has a very big Canadian presence. Very easy to open a US account. They transfer those money into, that money into the US account. It sits there for a week or two or three during the process. They transfer it to the title company via wire. And it really is that simple where they'll open a US account at one of the other major institutions, transfer it from RBC or whoever it is into a US-based bank. Let it sit there for a week or two as things finish up, wire it to title. That's really the biggest thing is making sure you keep the paper trail clean of funds for that down payment. Because at the end of the day, that's really the only big thing we're verifying since we're not checking all of the income documentation and everything in most cases. And is the process generally the same for purchasing a second home or a rental property? It is. It's virtually identical. For foreign nationals, they really only have one program. They consider them all investment properties. And they look at the rent on that property to say, will it cover the mortgage payment? And that's really the biggest thing they're looking at. And if it doesn't cover the mortgage payment, the rate's about a half a percent higher. If it does, the rate's kind of a standard rate where they start. And then where does the rent figure come from? Like, say the house isn't rented, does it come from? The appraiser. Appraisal. That was my question to you. Is it, is it a hypothetical number or is it actually like a lease agreement in place? Yeah. So it's from the appraiser. And one thing I will say is it's based on current long-term market rents. A 12-month rental agreement, not a VRBO, times 365 nights. That's not where the rental figure comes from. <laughs> we qualify for so much more though. <laughs> So my question is, if if you were buying, so as a Canadian, if I were buying a place in the United States, would I have to come down to the U.S. to sign something at the title or the uh, the title office, or can I do everything remotely? Like, are we are we doing things via DocuSign? 
So remotely, I'm going to go with no. The one option is you have two options. You can either come to the States and close, or you can go to the embassy, the US embassy, wherever you're located to sign the final document. That is the one option you have to not come to the States because the embassy is considered US soil. You're signing on US soil at your embassy. So that is the one way around not coming to the States. And there is one in Vancouver. I know that because I used to work right across from it. That's where Pat had to go to get his five-year work visa. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we've gone through the process. We've gone through application to closing to appraisals. My question is, as we round out our conversation, what does a trust your trusted team, a borrower's trusted team look like in the States for a foreign national or for someone within the States? I mean, the biggest part of the trusted team is really your real estate agent and your lender. The truth is you're never going to meet your title person probably until the day of closing if you even come to the States to close. And the truth is 90 plus percent of the time, your real estate agent is probably going to recommend the title company they normally work with. So it's really your real estate agent and your lender. And one big thing is getting them in touch as early as possible in the process. Because if you're not working with a real estate agent that's ever done a foreign national transaction, most of them are one of two things, completely confused and or completely skeptical. So one of the two will exist. Either like, wow, but they won't even know where to begin or exactly what to expect. Or they'll go, are you sure I've never done one of these? And they don't know. So that's probably the biggest thing is getting those two in touch Um, So really, I can step in as a lender, walk them through it if they've never done it, or if they have, update them on the process and reassure them of the situation, what we need, what we don't need, the things that are different about this relative to their traditional US citizen purchase. So switching gears just a a smidge, I don't know, Sue, did you have a a question along that same line? No, I I was going to comment on... um you know, we we add to that pile of insurance agents and accountants, yes. financial advisors, all of that kind of stuff. I think those are all just great people to have in your back pocket as part of your circle when you're making big financial decisions like this. Yeah. And we usually try to introduce you to an insurance agent without a doubt. And a lot of times we work with your financial planner or your accountant that are Canadian. So I wanted to get into the juicy bits about where you think, so if a, if a Canadian wanted to buy in the United States, where is the hot market? <laughs> I mean, aside from Austin, because everyone's going to Austin. It it really depends on what they're looking for. Are they looking for the investment potential in the cash flow? Are they looking for appreciation? And or are they looking for a place for themselves to get away for two months during the winter and VRBO the other 10 months out of the year? What is the function of the property? And I think that's the biggest thing you have to look at. There are certain markets that are probably not the ones you want to vacation to in Kansas and Iowa and Arkansas (laughs) and places of that nature that are great for cash flow because the markets have hardly appreciated over the last 10 years, very minimal. And then you've got other places like Destin, Florida, or places in Texas, Austin, one you mentioned, Birmingham, Alabama, that are technology places that are exploding and growing very quickly. And you've got enough rent to break even, but you've got some upside potential. And maybe it is a VRBO in Florida or on the coast of Texas or Mississippi or in California, where you're like, I'll go hide out for two months in the winter. I can justify it the other 10 months out of the year with VRBO rental and we'll be good to go. That's your choice. So it really boils down to what is the function of the property is the biggest thing I think that goes into that decision. And that's something I always go over with people up front is what are they really looking for? Ultimately in real estate and in life, that's the question, right? What are you really looking for? (laughs) What do you want it for? What's the function? Yeah, I know that was one of our first of our top five purchase tips is you know, set your goal, define your goal, stick to your goal. You know, what is it that you're looking for? Did we say know your why? 
Was that what it was? <laughs> it's a given. It's a given. <laughs> know your why. I think this feels like a really good place to, to wind down. The last few episodes we've done, we've been looking for fun stories, something a little outside of the box. Do you have anything in your 20 plus years of brokering that you'd like, a, just like a great story that you'd like to share? I have so many wild, crazy stories, especially in Alaska. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the stuff I've done with signings overseas in Japan and other places in between properties that I literally had one, probably one of the wildest ones is a property that literally was a 60 foot, like halibut fishing vessel that the guy had built a permanent foundation for on the Homer spit in Alaska, built a foundation and put a 60 foot boat that he'd converted almost like he would make a double wide and was wanting financing as though it was a very traditional home because to him it was home. So to us, it should be home. As long as it's got the porch attached, right? <laughs> and it has a foundation. That's amazing. Exactly. It makes me think of that. <clears throat> Which parts of the Caribbean is it where the black pearl is on the shore and Johnny Depp's like sniffing the peanut and he's trying like, <laughs> and that's... then all the crabs take the boat to the, Do you, yes. am I, does anybody know what I'm talking yes. about? <laughs> I think, I think he was in Davy Jones locker at that time. Yeah. And I'm trying to envision him hauling this halibut boat. <laughs> out and that's yeah it would be and i bet you everybody came from miles around with to, to, tug, to tug on the rope <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome well dustin thank you so much for joining us yes. today really appreciate all your tips and insights if anyone has any questions they can feel free to reach out we'll have dustin's info on our show notes and uh, yeah thank you again yeah thanks dustin that was awesome so much good information <laughs> Good talking to you at any time. You want to pick my brain, feel free. This is The Mortgage Life. We look forward to continuing the conversation. So come back and listen. 